The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church and chapter 5. After more than a year of study, we've reached the last section of this letter, and some of you may be thrilled to hear that, that we're finally getting close to the end and you want to move on. But I am sad to report, uh, if you feel that way, you need to settle down just a little bit because when we're through with the last section, we just move one page and we go into 2 Thessalonians. And the theme of the second letter is much like the theme of this first, where Paul gives us more information about the day of the Lord. And then he continues with a section uh, about how we should live as we wait on the Lord to return. And of course, that has been our subject through these many sermons in these last months has been, what do we do as we wait on Christ to return? So for several months, our discussion has been on the Bible doctrine of eschatology. Uh, This is the doctrine about the end times, which is the second most frequently spoken of topic in all of the scriptures. And in this letter, from chapter 4, verse number 8, on through chapter 5 and verse number 3, the subject is the rapture when Christ will call his church up into heaven. And then it's also about the day of wrath and the impact that this has on unbelievers who are left behind in this world when Christ returns. Now, Paul used Old Testament terminology to say that those that are left behind will go through the day of the Lord. And that is a period of judgment upon the earth. It's a time when God will purge this earth and prepare it for the golden age. And that's when the kingdom of God comes to this earth. When Jesus Christ, who is the everlasting king, comes to set up a kingdom here upon this earth. And then at the end of that earthly kingdom, God will destroy this world with fire. He will recreate the universe And the new creation will never be touched by sin. Sin goes out of existence when this world is renewed. And God intends that his people will live forever without bother of all heartaches, without the sicknesses, without unholiness, without all of those things that have been caused by sin. And that's wonderful news. It's a wonderful existence that we look forward to. In fact, Jesus said when he gave us the model prayer, You ought to pray for this. He said, pray that the kingdom will come. And so we hope for that and we expect it because God promised it would come. And God's promises never fail. And so we hear this and we're very happy that God is going to end all turmoil and all sufferings of this life. The Bible says that our final salvation is when we are delivered from the presence of sin. And then we are in our glorified bodies in the presence of Christ forever. And that, folks, is the expectancy that keeps us going in this troubled world. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, we are saved by hope. And the grace that is secured in hope is the grace of patience. It's grace of endurance as we wait on Christ to come. And I would suggest that is the theme of the last part of this letter. The theme is the endurance of the church 
as we wait on Christ. This is the church preparing itself by living holy, sanctified lives. This is about the church going about the Lord's business of fulfilling its responsibilities towards each other, towards the world, and of course towards our Savior. Now the reality is that the future is our hope. The reality is also that we're not there yet. If our hope was realized, we wouldn't need hope any longer. But we do need faith and hope in this world now. That sustains us as we live in this world that's very hostile to our faith and and the world would spoil our hope. And so as a church, what we must do in this time is to come together. We must circle our wagons and pay attention to the kinds of relationships that will sustain our faith and keep our church alive through the tough times that we face. Now this last section in 1 Thessalonians 5 is about relationships. What are the relationships that must be built and sustained? Well, there are four major ones that hold us up and take us into the future. Then there's one more that causes us to look back into the past and respect the authority of the one who gave us this information. Now, Paul's brief comments on the return of Christ that we saw in chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, those are now over. And here Paul returns to the practical part of this discussion as he encourages Christians about daily living. Now, verse number 11, that was a a natural transition point from the uh, previous section. He told the church to take comfort in Christ's return. He said, edify one another as you know that you belong to Christ. Whether you live or die, you are Christ. And the Thessalonian church needed to hear this because they were a persecuted church. They faced severe challenges that in many ways are much worse than what we face today. This is a new church. It's a church that's new to the faith. They hadn't learned all the things that we've learned. And here they are. They're just getting their feet wet in this new religion that is unpopular, still not known very well. And it was very hard for them. Christianity was radically different from what they knew. It's nothing like their pagan religion. It turned their thinking upside down. And there was always this danger uh, of the converts that Paul made. There's always the danger that they will return. They'll go back to the way that they lived before. There's the danger of falling out and not following Christ in, in, in uh, the belief that they have in him. Now we know this from Paul's theology that there was never, never any danger of anyone trusting Christ and then losing their salvation. But there is a danger of becoming ineffective. There's a danger of losing the influence that you need to have over the world. There's the danger of losing potential for the cause of Christ. And so that's what we're here in this world for. We are here to represent Christ. He doesn't take us home when we believe because he leaves us here to represent him. And we're expected to represent him well. And so it's Christ's intention for the church to work towards maturity. We are to grow in our sanctification. We are to grow in our holiness so we can be used in his service. Now it's Christ's objective that he would have a glorious church, a church that's made in his image. And that's not going to happen unless the church develops within. We will never influence anyone on the outside of this church until we have developed properly inside. And this development comes through healthy relationships. What are the relationships? Well, I would like to show you four that are in this passage, and we're going to discuss them over the next few weeks. 
And in the closing section of this letter, uh, all of this is covered in verses 12 down through verse 28, and I'm not going to read all of those today, but I would like for you to read them later, and uh, that'll make you ready for more discussion. It'll be a very good thing for you to do. You know it's coming because we preach the Bible verse by verse. So it's good for you to read ahead, study a little bit ahead, study on your own, and that'll help you prepare for future messages. Now let me emphasize once again that the church at Thessalonica was a new church. Paul began the church just a short time before he sent this letter, and the time that he spent with them was very brief. You remember, by reading in the book of Acts, that there was much opposition to his teachings. Uh, The opposition was so intense that Paul was run out of town. It appears that he was there for only about three weeks, and that's the extent of the stay, and that's just not very much time to ground people in the faith. Then you also remember in this letter that he was very anxious about the success of the church. He didn't know if they had continued to grow in the faith. He didn't know if they were anchored in their faith. He didn't know if they were still holding on to what they'd been taught. And so to find out, he sent his trusted friend Timothy to check on them. It was usual for believers to be plunged into persecution just as soon as they believed. What Satan loves to do is to pick on and throw his full might against the church, especially new believers. He tries to snatch them away before they're solidly planted in good ground. So Timothy went back to see the church, and then he returned to Paul to report, and he brought back this glowing report. Yes, the church is doing well, Timothy said. Yes, they're still holding on. And so Paul was able to commend them for their faith, their love, and their hope. And as we've learned, that's the triumvirate of Christianity. Faith in God, love for God and your fellow man, and hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. So here is a church that's doing well, but those three areas, because they are such a young church, needed to be strengthened. They had a very good start in doctrine, but they were still deficient to some degree in all three of these areas. And so Paul writes the letter to increase their faith, to perfect their love, and to correct the misunderstandings they have about their hope. And so writing to this new church, he needed to get practical. How can he help them? How can he show them how to fulfill verse number 11? There he said, comfort one another with what you know. Edify one another. That means to build them up. So how will they do this? How will they become a strong, vibrant church? The answer, according to him, is pay attention to your relationships. Know what you're supposed to do in the church. Watch how you interact with each other. Respect your roles in these relationships. And friends, in 2,000 years, that hasn't changed. This information is good for us because we'll fare no better than them without it. How are we to be a strong church and how will we stay a strong church? Well, first, this is where we're going to spend our time today. First is verses 12 and 13. You have your Bibles open. First Thessalonians 5, verse number 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. And the first relationship that the church must be concerned with is how the church relates to its leaders. How do you relate to those that God puts over you? Now, as they wait on the Lord to return, 
They need to develop this relationship. So this is number one. This is what we're going to talk about today. Respect the labors of leadership. Now you can well imagine that I'd want to hammer on this point. There must be strong, biblical, respectful relationships that flow from leadership to the people and then cycles back to the leaders. This is a relationship that there must be give and take from both sides. Now, the leaders of the church, especially the pastor, the pastor is a representative of Christ. The church needs good leaders. It needs dedicated leaders. It needs responsible leaders. And those leaders must be diligent. And if they're not, this enterprise of of being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and being a witness to the world, that all falls apart. You just check and see how many churches do well if they don't maintain good leadership. If leadership fails, the church is in trouble. When leadership fails, it must be immediately repaired or the church will fall. And that fall may not be because of a moral failure, and many today are. Many churches do fall because there's moral failures among the leadership. But it might just be bad leadership in doctrine. It may just be bad doctrine, and that leads the church into apostasy. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but churches may grow numerically when they are apostate. Did you know that church growth experts can teach you how to grow a church with weak, self-centered, doctrinally deficient leaders so that the church becomes more of a clubhouse for activities rather than a stronghold of the Christian faith? So many churches are built on the personality of the pastor. And then when that happens, most often the personalities are not godly men that are strong in the faith. And so when I speak of growing the church, I'm not talking about adding numbers to the church role. I'm not necessarily speaking to you about trying to fill up every empty seat that's in the church. I mean, you look at the letters of Paul and tell me how many times that you find that Paul reported how many people attended church. Now, when you get outside of the first few chapters of Acts, there are no figures about how many people were saved. Nothing is said about how many are added to the church. And the reason for this is that the growth that the apostle was concerned with was the growth in the knowledge of the word. His growth that he's concerned with is the knowledge of Christ. He's concerned with sanctification. He is concerned that the church fills out the image of Christ that they're intended to be. And isn't that what Paul stated was his top priority? He said, above all else, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And so he emphasized spirituality. He emphasized sanctification. He emphasized the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so he took no thought for how many programs the church had or how many ministries they could start. You see, as good as those things are, they mean nothing. If people are not grounded solidly in the faith. Now the sad story is that while concentrating on the numerical growth of the church, leadership often leaves the people weak, unstable, still in sin and lacking in holiness. So churches fail on God's scale when they don't become mature in the faith and grow in holiness and righteousness. And then on the other side of this, churches fail when they don't respect good leadership. If confidence and leadership fails, then the people are a sheep 
wandering sheep without a shepherd. They're just wandering aimlessly around on their own and they have no direction. A good leader, when you find a good leader in a church, that is a leader to be followed. It's a leader to be respected. It's one to be held up. He's one to be prayed for, one to be supported. And if that doesn't happen, then the church will also fail. Now, bear in mind the experience of this church. They're new. Their converts are new. And quite frankly, they have this problem. There are no seasoned veterans to lead the church. And so you'll notice in the passage that Paul, when he speaks of leadership, he doesn't mention pastors. And he doesn't talk about deacons. He doesn't designate any offices. He only says, those who labor among you. And I could well imagine that Paul's greatest anxiety over this church, it may be that how is this church going to hold together? How will they develop leadership? I mean, when there, when there hasn't been time to train pastors, how does the church hold together? That's difficult. And I think probably God did something supernatural to put it into their hearts to have patience. And I think that's what Paul is pleading here. This is what he's pleading about. Have patience. Wait on the Lord as the leaders are being trained. Now let me stop at this point and say uh, the point in general that's made is that whomever that God appoints to leadership, the people must give them time and patience. And I also want to stop here and say that before this rings our bell, we need to understand who the leaders of the church are. What does the Bible call the leader? What terms does it use? And those terms are important for us. So on your listening sheet today, we're going to list the primary office of leadership and the different terms that the Bible uses for this leadership. So what about church leadership? Well, the first term is the one that concerns us the most in the context of this letter. This is a new church, and this term does not seem to fit them. It doesn't seem to be the right one. And that is the term elder. Now, you probably won't remember the Greek word for this if I gave it to you. So I'll just say, this is the term that Paul used in 1 Timothy 5, verse number 17. He said, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. Let the elders that rule well. And when I say elder, most of you think of the folks that are in the old folks' homes. Those are the elders. We're the young people. They're the elders. Well, the Bible doesn't use the term that way very often concerning the church. An elder might be old, but that's not really what it refers to. Most importantly, it refers to his wisdom. Elder is a term that's used for a wise leader who knows how to handle the word of God. So sometimes the leader of the church is called the elder, and this particularly concerns the rule of the church. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The second term is bishop. Bishop is a word that comes from, or that means overseer. Now, this time I'll give you the Greek word. It's episcopy. You recognize that as the root word for episcopal. Paul used this word in Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Overseers, that's episcopy, that's the bishops. And then thirdly, 
the term that's most often used in Scripture, the one that you're most familiar with, is that of pastor. The pastor. Pastor comes from a word that means shepherd. The shepherd is the pastor. The pastor is the shepherd of the church, and the people are the sheep. This is a word that refers to the nurturing care of God's flock, of the sheep of God's church. And when I say that the pastor is representative of Christ, we think of Christ as the chief shepherd. We think of him as the good shepherd. And the shepherd of the church, the pastor, has the role of being the under-shepherd of Jesus Christ, being under his leadership. Now, the Thessalonian church lacked this experienced person that could be the elder, could be the bishop and pastor of the church. And this is because there's no one that's trained, so we don't see Paul use the terms here. But we do know this for sure, that a church can't operate without leadership. Somebody must be in charge. Somebody must head up the teaching ministries, the preaching ministries. If we don't have a leader, we have chaos. And so Paul knew this church would fall apart if people constantly whined and complained about the inexperience of their leaders. If they're not patient to let the leadership develop, then they're not going to have a chance of getting a good leader. So they have to agree among themselves as the people of God that what we must do is submit to the authority of the one that God put over us. Respect the authority that God put over us. Now, evidently, in the months that Paul was absent from this church, there were some men who had risen to the top, and they were worthy to keep this church together. And so perhaps Paul identified these men, and he saw the potential they had, and now he's telling the church, keep things together. You see, he says here, he's saying, those that labor among you, they're working for you. They're working for the Lord. They are over you in the Lord. These are men that are sanctioned by God. And that person who is sanctioned by God to lead the church is one who is to be esteemed for the work that he does. Now, we're going to split these two things apart. We're splitting them into the labor of the pastor for the people and the esteem the people have for the one who labors. Now, we don't need to spend much time on the Thessalonian problem of inexperience and their growing pains because their inexperience is not our experience. What we need to look and see is what does the experienced pastor do and how should the people listen and respect the experienced pastor? Now, first, he talks about the labor of the pastor. What does he do for the church? Now, before you answer that, I've heard it all before. The pastor doesn't do very much at all. All that he does is preach sermons that are too long on Sunday morning. That's pretty much the extent of what the pastor does. Well, that's not what Paul means by leadership here. And neither does he mean a pastor who physically works. And that's sometimes what people expect the pastor to do. Well, we don't have anybody to paint the nursery, so the pastor has to go do that himself. Well, he might do that, but that's not the kind of work that Paul speaks of here. What does the pastor do? What is his primary work in the church? Well, we start with his primary work is to instruct the church. No matter what else the pastor may do, if he doesn't do this and do it well, then he fails in duty. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers 
for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, as you look at that list in those two verses, there are some of these offices that the church doesn't have any longer. There are no apostles in the church. The, the apostles are gone. They died. And there are no apostles that have been appointed to take their place. So there are no apostles in the church. There aren't any prophets in the church. Everything that we receive, we receive through the Word of God now. We don't need anybody to tell us the future because all we need to know is in the Word of God. So we don't have prophets in that sense. And this might surprise you that we don't have evangelists in the church. Not evangelists as the word is used here in the scriptures. Now I know many churches use that term evangelist, but it doesn't compare to the work of the evangelist in the New Testament. So we're left with one office out of this list, and that is the office of the pastor. That's the primary office of the church, and Paul was careful to instruct concerning this office. He wrote letters to two pastors, to Timothy and Titus, where he explained what pastors do. In Ephesians 4, he wrote that the pastor is to perfect the saints. That talks about maturity. He's to instruct people to bring them to maturity in the faith. Now, a pastor starts by teaching new converts the basics. He begins by teaching very elementary things. These, are, these things are termed the milk of the word. You see, in order for you to grow, you've got to start out in the easy things, the elementary things. And you have to have simple food, just like a baby needs simple food, needing milk. But new converts are supposed to grow. And as they grow, the pastor feeds them with more solid food. And as they continue to grow, he takes them into the deeper doctrines of the faith. Hebrews 6 makes an interesting comment on this process. Uh, we can use it for comparison. The author says in Hebrews 6, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, that is maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. Now all those doctrines that he mentions are very important doctrines. They're foundational. These are doctrines that must be understood before you can go on to other things. But the author meant that these things are foundational to the Jews. I mean, he's writing to the Jews in, in this Hebrew letter, and uh, he writes to them, uh, they need to know these things to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. That's what they learned in the past, that Jesus is coming and they learned all these washings, the works of the law, the resurrection of the dead. They have actually an imperfect knowledge of those things. But he says you are to leave these old ceremonial doctrines that you held to before and you are to advance. You are to learn more about Christ since Christ has come. Now obviously we're not Jews. We're not brought up under that system. But to make the application to Christians today, we can't stay in the elementary, fundamental principles of the gospel and never go beyond those things. Now, unfortunately, for years, this has been a failing in our Baptist churches. The people hear hundreds of messages on the simple gospel. They hear scores of messages on the love of God, dozens and dozens on dress issues, but there isn't anything that advances anybody in the great doctrines of the faith. 
And so they become concerned about outer sanctification, not inner sanctification. And so the people know very little about Christ. They know very little of the doctrines of Christ. Oh, they know themselves. They know their efforts. They know how much they put into it. But if you ask them to sit down and explain the details of how God worked out salvation, they can't do it. And if you tell them these things, they're suspicious about it, as if you're trying to pull something on them. Now, look here in this epistle, and we see what Paul had to say about it in chapter 3, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. For what thanks can we render a God to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. What does Paul want to do? He wants to fill in the holes in their faith. Now, if you examine these people, what do they know? Oh, these are people that know the gospel. They've heard the gospel. They have believed. They know how that faith, love, and hope flow out of the gospel. And that's a great thing. You ought to know that. How does faith, love, and hope come out of the gospel? But apparently, Paul says, that's not enough. Those are just foundational principles. You need those, but you lack grounding in more complex doctrines of the faith. And so I'll tell you what's wrong with most of our Baptist churches. Every Sunday, they hear the simple gospel. Why does it take 50 sermons a year to get people to learn the gospel? It doesn't. And so, we've come to, now in our study, 50 sermons in these chapters in 1 Thessalonians. Why do we do that? The purpose is to take you deeper into the faith, to explain to you, what do the Scriptures say? What does God want you to know out of His Word? You know, I remember a lady who told me that she referred a new Christian to our church because she knew that when they came here, they would hear the Bible. And she said, in her church, this new convert couldn't grow because they didn't discuss the same things that we discuss. Is that a sad commentary? Churches don't go deeper into the faith so people don't insist on knowing more about the faith. They don't know what they don't know. They don't even know what to ask for, it seems. Well, we want you to listen. We want you to learn more. So we give you three levels of teaching here. This, this service is the easiest for most. The 4 o'clock service goes a little bit deeper. The Wednesday evening Bible study gives us the opportunity to discuss more profound subjects. Paul said, your faith is lacking. Now, he didn't mean they didn't have enough saving faith. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the faith that you live by. It's the faith that are the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Now, these are people that are saved. They got enough saving faith. How much does that take? Not very much, apparently. New Christians need to grow. And these were hanging out on the surface of their faith, just floating along when they really needed to dive down deep to see the beauty of Jesus Christ that lies underneath this thing that we call Christianity. Now notice in our, in our text, he says, the leadership labors among you. In other words, the leaders are with you. They come alongside of you to help you in your, in your struggles in the faith. So that's the first work of the pastor, to teach people the truth, to inspect, to instruct them in the word. And perhaps the title that fits that best is the title of elder. He is the wise, learned elder, a guide for inexperienced Christians. Now his next duty might best fit another term. He is the pastor. He is the shepherd. So he is to shepherd the church. 
The pastor is the shepherd. This is a term that also involves teaching, but it broadens out beyond instruction. In instruction, speaking of instruction, I can teach you by reading you the word, pointing out the details. I can take an academic approach. I can give you the facts and the figures. But if that's all that you need from me, I have a library of books that I can loan you. Well, that's not exactly true. I won't loan you my books because I don't get them back. But we are getting a, making a church library, and there'll be things in there that can help you. But I would tell you, you need more than books. You need more than books. You need a relationship with the shepherd. I'm your shepherd. I'm not a shepherd to people that are outside of this church. I don't have any authority over people that are outside. My only authority is among the membership of this church. And the only authority that I have in the membership is the authority that comes from God's Word. I can't take any other authority than what God's Word gives me. So the shepherd is more than just a teacher. He's a modeler. He's close to you. He makes it his life's work to be with you. Our text says, labors among you. And did Paul model it? He did. Chapter 2. He modeled what he says in chapter 5. In chapter 2, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, not just the instruction out of the word of God, but our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Isn't that a marvelous picture of the shepherd? You aren't just a bunch of students in a classroom. You're part of my life. I'm part of your life. This is the reason that I agonize when people leave the church. You know, my goal is for us to grow old together. My goal is for you, you to raise your children in this church and for them to come to know Jesus Christ and then for me to baptize them, see them continue to grow, and then replace us old folks as the leaders of this church. And the best way to ensure that this church stays doctrinally where it is is to raise our young people to take over. It's to teach them the very same doctrines that we believe. And so you may say, well, I'm going to try to outlive the pastor so this church will change to a different doctrine. And I'll say, well, I'm sorry, you'll have to outlive the young people too. Because we don't intend to change. We want to keep the church rock solid in the truth. Now, the shepherd feeds the church the Word of God. He protects it with the Word of God so that you can grow. Paul told the Ephesian elders, feed the church of God. He says, grievous wolves are ready to devour them. And so this is what the pastor does. He protects the flock. He protects the church from grievous wolves that would destroy them through perverting doctrines of the faith. Someone asked me, what kind of Baptist are you? What are Bereans? I get that question a lot. What are Bereans? What is a Berean Baptist? Well, there's, there's some good answers to that, but I'll, I'll limit it to this. I said, we're historical Baptists. We keep the faith of Jesus and the apostles. Our doctrine is their doctrine. The sign outside says Baptist. And I want to continue to teach what this church and Baptist churches before us have taught all the way since the time of Jesus Christ. Now let me give you the last one. The pastor is an elder, he is a shepherd, and the pastor is a bishop. The pastor is a bishop, he is to oversee the work. And so it's his duty to administer in the church. 
He watches over all the functions of the church. He oversees every ministry of the church. Now, he might not do every ministry, and I don't think that he should, but he is responsible for all of them. He can't do it all, and the Lord doesn't want him to do it all. He wants you. He wants you sitting right there in the pew to learn how to do ministry. He wants you to learn so that you are not dependent on the bishop for your entire life to lead you around like you're blind. There comes a time, the Word of God says, when you ought to be teachers yourselves. That ought to be the goal of every Christian in here. Lord, help me to learn so I can teach other people what I know about Jesus Christ. So the Lord wants me to lead you. He wants me to equip you to take over. Someday I'll be gone. I will die. But the Lord's church will not die. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I want you to understand what Jesus meant when he said that. He didn't mean that any one particular church like this one right here in Roner Park would never cease to exist because it will if we're not faithful to the Lord. But the Lord is going to have a church somewhere, I'll guarantee you that, until he comes back again. But this is what I do as I preach to you on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. I'm getting you ready for my death. I'm the administrator that's preparing a coffin. I'm getting ready to climb in that coffin, and I want to show you what to do when I'm gone. Oh, I thank the Lord for those here that are willing to work. The minister and the ministry fail if people do not get involved. And we're just so blessed here in Berean Baptist because we have a faithful, committed core who do the church work. The job gets done. The work goes on. These are people that make it my joy to serve here. When I can't be here because of my wife's illness, so many of you have stepped up to take over, and that's a very special blessing to me and also to the people. When they see that there, there have been some that have grown, there's some that can teach, some can take over, that's a credit to the ministry. And so this is the way that Paul closes out the letter. What's he doing? Well, he's an apostle that can't be there all the time. He's not there when he wrote the letter. He's getting them ready for the Lord's return. Patience with inexperience was needed in Thessalonica until such time as this church could get a grip on the gospel, grip on the doctrines of the faith, and move forward. So Paul wanted to protect that current leadership until it could happen. And again, the church will fail without good leadership. It will fail if you don't listen and obey and respect good leadership. That's the side that I want to approach next time. The leader is responsible to teach you and guide you and help you until you become proficient in the faith. And once he's done all of that, what are you to do for him? What is your responsibility towards the shepherd? Well, let me close with this thought. Although the gospel, the simple gospel, is not our only subject, it still must be a subject. Jesus is coming. He's coming. And there might be someone here today who's not a believer. This message is for the church. I've spoken to believers. This part of the letter is about believers. Paul has already addressed unbelievers in the section before this. So here we are. We're talking about believers. So if you haven't trusted Christ, I hate to say that the message is wasted on you. Because I hope there's something that you learn from it as well. But I do know this. You can't get the full benefit of what's been said today unless you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's a very simple thing. The Holy Spirit doesn't use the word in unbelievers like he does in a believer. Until you've come to know Christ as Savior, you're not going to understand the importance of anything that I've said today. 
It'll, it'll just flow off of you like water off a duck's back. It doesn't matter to you. But those who know Jesus Christ and are grounded in the faith, they see the value of a pastor standing here and telling you something like this from the Word of God. So we still have to give the gospel to people. We want people to be, to be saved. You won't go to heaven when Christ comes unless you know Him as your Savior. And that doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. doesn't matter if your mom was a Christian. doesn't matter if your best friend was a Christian. That's not the question. Are you a Christian? That's the thing that needs to be answered. And if you don't believe, all of these others, your mom, your friends, all those who know Christ will leave you behind. No one who's a Christian who doesn't have personal faith in Christ. No one who is a Christian who hasn't realized that they are sinners, that they are a sinner justly deserving of God's wrath. No one is a Christian who hasn't turned from his sins and asked Christ to save him. So what are you? Are you a believer or an unbeliever? This church stands ready to receive those who have faith in Christ into membership. Paul wrote this letter to a church a church that we are striving to be, we want to be what he wanted the Thessalonian church to be. It truly matters. Everything that he wrote here matters because Christ is coming back to claim his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now acknowledging once again that we must depend upon you for everything that we have in this life. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray for the growth of our church. And though we would like to see every seat in this place filled, we're more concerned, far more concerned, about whether the Word of God has filled the hearts of those that are here. Are we people dedicated to you? Do we live lives of holiness because the Word of God controls our lives? That's what we want to know. And then, Lord, as we become a church that's wholly dedicated to you, completely sanctified through your word, we, we do know this, Lord, that you will bring people into the church to hear the gospel of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be faithful every single day to the duty that you've called us to do. And then, Lord, help us to respect the leader. I thank you for our church and just the uh, support that I get. Uh, I, don't, I don't know of a church that loves its pastor any more than this one does. What a, what a wonderful thing, and we praise you for it. Bless our people. We appreciate them so much. Bless as we sing today and dismiss today and speak to someone's heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.